Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host, friend, co-pilot, down this ever, never-ending road of the contrary. Uh, I guess it's ever-ending also, just because we always, with movies like the ones we're covering today, we come to a hard stop with a lot of the things that we do. So, uh, yes, hello, welcome, Julio. How are you doing on this Tuesday evening? It's September 21st, and it's still fucking 90 degrees in Texas. It's uh, it's a taxing time. And you have to get up in the morning and drive every day. So yes. you know that the weather conditions are still very real. But uh, I'm back to uh, that commuting life. <laughs> there you go. Aside from all that, I just had to get my jab in there about global warming because it's fucking ridiculous. How are you doing, Julio? <laughs> uh, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. It's... I had a vacation uh, that was a lot less eventful than yours. And by that, I mean that we're, we're not going to dedicate a patron segment to it. Because it would just be me whining about how I can't drink as much as my father-in-law and my brother-in-law. Uh, but either way, it was, it was you know, a solid, I don't know, 10 days of not working. And that was, that was awesome. So now I'm back to work and I don't hate it. So I, I'll take it as a win. Well, speaking of something we don't hate. Uh, we're here this evening to cover a film that has been requested by one of our patrons to get the full contrarian's treatment. And it's one that since the dawn of this that you and I have just repeatedly fawned over and lusted after. And that is <laughs> P.T. Anderson's uh, 2012, what we have called a masterpiece in the past, and that is The Master. Uh, obviously, we're going to be here to break it down a few notches uh, this evening. But... This was one that we always kind of talked amongst ourselves and jested about never would really come down the pipe because, one, it kind of falls outside of the ratings uh, scale that we go for. We usually shoot for about 90% and above for the fresh side. And, two, we never really thought we could bring ourselves to find the the issues with this movie. But, <laughs> thankfully... There's some people out there that throw a few bucks our way every month, and part of that is that they get to demand films for us to cover and give the full contrarian's treatment to, like I said. And in this case, I think it was done intentionally so because uh, of our known love for this movie. I mean, I think anybody that's listened to the show for a while knows that that you and I look at the master the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman looks at Joaquin Phoenix in this movie. <laughs> Just pure adoration. I want to say it's it's possible that the master gets brought up on this show about as much as good time. 
So, <laughs> but with the master, it's a, a communal praise. It's not just me <laughs> shoehorning in. Hey, well, it's kind of like in Good Time. Have you seen that? It's a great movie. <laughs> Whenever the master comes up, we're hashtag all in on it. Uh, Julio, I think we've covered this on the podcast before, somewhere in our vast. Uh, library of episodes, and that is you and I screened this movie together, and I believe we did so with your now wife uh, when we used to work together. We watched this at the theater in, fuck, what was it, the fall of 2012? Uh, We're recording actually pretty close to the release date. This came out on September 14th of 2012. Uh, Is that right? Did did your wife watch it with us? Uh, If she did, I remember screening it with you if kelly was with us there is no way that she made it through the entire movie (laughs) she probably fell asleep i feel like i remember that being a thing i remember and again this could be a different movie but i'm i would i'm comfortable saying it was the master i'm like 90 percent sure kelly watched it with us and i remember uh her sense of bewilderment afterwards when you and me were just like couldn't believe how amazing it was you and i were both acting like we had just lost our virginity again for the first time and she was just like yeah fell asleep during it and didn't understand at all what we got out of it and you and i were just like oh and then uh yeah because no i remember her specifically calling out the part at the end when she uh i guess she had woken up when uh he sings to joaquin phoenix she was like what the fuck was that about and (laughs) that sounds very much like my wife and uh (laughs) I guess I'd block that memory so that we we could have a happy marriage after. <laughs> well, you know, if not for your uh, wife-in-law, your wife in podcasting me, we, you have uh, a division <laughs> of memories when it comes to the master. But uh, all joking aside, yes, uh, this was a movie that, as I mentioned, we screened. It was also one uh, slow times at the theater, so when people would come up and say, hey, what should I see? I'd be like, you got to see this movie. And it was usually like older people, and it was about a 50-50. Someone would come out and say, yeah, that was amazing, and other than come out and be like, I didn't get it. And I would <laughs> just be like, get, be gone. You're not worthy of it. <laughs> They'd come out like, I fell asleep halfway through. I woke up when the guy was singing. What the fuck's going on? <laughs> what is his obsession with cools? Uh, so, Julio. Who brought this uh, across the table for us? Who who sent us this assignment? A friend, Ben Murray from Filmbusters. He okay. Let's be fair. He gave us the option because he basically threw two movies because he gets to pick one for the main feed and one for the exclusive patron feed. And he said mm-hmm. you can do them either way you want. So we could have done the master just for the patron feed, which would have meant only real talk, no contrarians corner, and that means mm-hmm. that we would be doing desperate measures. Uh, uh, the thriller with Andy Garcia and Michael Keaton uh, here for con- the full contrarian's treatment. But neither of us has seen that, and it seemed just right to seize the opportunity to challenge ourselves and try to talk badly about the master uh, for an hour or so. So Ben put it out there, and then we we all knew that's what he really wanted. He wanted to hear oh, it. Yeah. I, actually, I don't even know if he likes this movie, so it will be interesting to hear about it later. There are some people that do not care for this movie uh, in the same way you and I do. Uh, our friend Reed, for one, oh, finds man. it to be yeah he <laughs> finds it to be one of P.T. Anderson's weaker uh, entries in his filmography, which we we've hashed it out a few times over it. We've we've had it out. Does it end with you calling him pig fuck, or does he call you <laughs> pig fuck? I've made like references to that movie. He's only seen it once, and I've made references to it several times, like jokingly with him, and they go right over his head. I'll be like, you know. <laughs> 
like Freddie Quill. <laughs> so as you can already tell by our intro here, a movie that we both love, but also there's a little bit of sentimental attachment to just from our experience of screening it together. I haven't seen this on seven. No, I did. I did in the past year. I saw this on 70 millimeter at the draft house. I, I did took as a, well. Yes. You weren't at the same screening. It, they did like a couple, didn't they? Yeah, no, I actually, I went with uh, another friend of the podcast. I went with Eddie. That, that's right. I couldn't, for whatever reason, I couldn't make that one with y'all. So I was elated that I was able to make the, the later one. Yeah, I took a hinge date with me to that. And she seemed a bit put off by how much I enjoy this movie. Because <laughs> Did she fall asleep halfway through, Alex? She did not fall asleep. We went out afterwards and uh, got some donuts at Voodoo Donuts, which is just a you know a few blocks away from the draft house downtown. This was right before COVID. This would have been either January or February of 2020. You know, things didn't pan out with her, but she did. Uh, she said she enjoyed it, but I could tell that she was trying to figure out why I like it so much. <laughs> As you were wiping the tears <laughs> of your eyes, exactly. She, she was just finishing her soda and going like, ah, well. I'm already here. And then I asked her if she could answer a series of questions without blinking, and that was the end of it. So if this is your first time tuning into The Contrarians, thank you so much for doing so. If you're a returning listener, y'all know we got love for you. Give me a minute here while we explain what it is that we do uh, to our new friends. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. It's our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. And like I say, usually shoot for about 90% and above. Those movies known as Certified Fresh come with that nice IP, that uh, image of fucking tomato with like a sash and trophy around it. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. And what we do with those bad boys is we bring them down to size. We point out some of the issues, plot holes, overrated performances in the film. We go to expose what the critics, uh, for whatever reason, willfully left out. It looks like despite its 84% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, the master is certified fresh. I thought they usually reserve that for uh, the higher tier. But you know what that means? The first portion of this podcast, uh, we're going to bring the master down to size. Conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, usually about 30% and below. Uh, those nasty green splotches known as Rotten make a case for the positive merit in the film and maybe why it's a little bit under-celebrated. Uh, that's what we had to do last month with Hancock, and it was a task on par with what we are going to be doing this evening. Uh, <laughs> but Julio, that all comprises the first portion of the podcast known as Contrarian's Corner, where we put on our contrarian hats and uh, play our role. Uh, if, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the films that we cover, they just have to stick around to the second half. Or in, in this very special episode, they could just listen to the first 10 minutes where we just <laughs> gush over the master. <laughs> but uh, no, once you get to the second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, uh, that's where we, we show our real feelings. And uh, yeah, I mean, you just heard us talk about how much we love the master, but most episodes aren't like that. Most episodes, at least one of us, is kind of up in the air until we get to Real Talk. But this time, you know what you're in for. We know what we're in for, but it's still going to be a good time. Speaking of good time, have you ever seen Good Time by the Safdie Brothers? <laughs> Wonderful film. Uh, as I mentioned, released on September 14th of 2012. It was my number one movie of that year, Julio. I can't remember what I had second. It was probably something preposterous. Dallas Buyers Club. <laughs> Just, yeah, again, I got the advanced <laughs> screening of it that year. Uh, it looks like it premiered in Venice on September 1st of 2012. Written and directed by the one and only P.T. Anderson, Mr. Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, 
and Amy Adams, all three of which were nominated for an Academy Award. Sadly, none of them won. Uh, we, we had an Academy Award winner in the midst here, future Academy Award winners in the form of Laura Dern, and I always forget he's in this movie, Rami Malek. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Robot himself. I, I think that Rami Malek's performance in this movie is the biggest argument towards taking away his Oscar. I think uh, PT was just doing someone a favor because he's still greener than goose shit in this. He looks like <laughs> overwhelmed to be on a film set. And then, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to go ahead and call it uh, Jesse Plemons, a future Academy Award winner. I'm just putting that on the table there. I think it's just a matter of time. It is. He's uh, very unassuming in this. But, you know, the Plemons, you've got his comedic chops and uh, observe and report. Uh, I heard he was really good in Fargo. He's a bad, bad dude in Breaking Bad. So he's he's kind of been all over the place. Uh, this movie came along with a lot of intrigue. Uh, Julio, as I'm sure uh, you do like myself, remember the trailers and teasers for this were all very, very ambiguous and very um, almost ominous. I remember the first tra- teaser for it was that one of Freddy uh, talking to a psychiatrist and talking about an incident he says was there a fight i'm not going to do my freddie quill impression on this because <laughs> oh, it's lost on the podcasting universe because <laughs> you, you know you have to contort your face and shit but um <laughs> it was a very very and very pt anderson like marketing campaign leading into this to the point where up until just about to the release time a lot of people didn't know what the fuck this movie was about and even after it got released a lot of people didn't know what it was about um, yeah i mean the the, the, the big assumption Rather, at least the way that some people were selling it was that it was uh, L. Ron Hubbard's biopic, just changing the names. I still am curious where that all got overblown, because while there are some parallels and, you know, you could even say some allusions to L. Ron Hubbard and the Scientology community. This movie, a lot of people seem to get this idea before it came out that it was going to like bully the Scientology community and like point to it and say, this is wrong. My guess is maybe somewhere in the promotional cycle of this, P.T. Anderson said that the Lancaster Dodd character, you know, may have been based off L. Ron Hubbard. And then people just took that and ran with it because I do remember that being a big part of the lead into it. And then I saw it. And I tried to taper my expectations to begin with. And I was like, well, that didn't have anything to fucking do with Scientology. I mean, yeah, it like talks about cult mentality, but it's not like, you know, that South Park episode where they went out of their way to just demonize and bury Scientology. Which, by the way, I'm not saying that it's not a facet of life that uh, doesn't necessarily deserve to be scrutinized or put on blast. But at the same time, this uh, this movie did fine without it. All right, Julio, 84%, as I said. Critics were gaga about this. What were they saying? What were the accolades here? And let us I'm curious if you found any that actually you know, talk about how great the story is or if it's just the <laughs> awards-baity thing of fearless performances. Uh, well, I, I'll tell you this. As I was browsing through uh, Rotten Tomatoes quotes, I would say maybe 50% make some sort of uh, allusion at Paul Thomas Anderson being a master. For example... Yasser Medina from Cinema Aficionados says, It's a provocative masterpiece that has amplified my faith for the cinema of the master Paul Thomas Anderson. That was definitely a pat on the back when they finished <laughs> writing that. They, yes. You done good, kid. Next, 
Jay Hoberman from Artinfo.com says, The main thing is that the Master is so unlike anything else in its seriousness and so admirable in its vitality that one has to support it. Has to? Jay Hoberman? Nobody has to do anything for any movie. Uh, but I think that's actually what you were saying, Alex. He just felt that the movie was so important that it had to get accolades. Using that phrasing is why we're in the goddamn situation that we're in right now in this country of telling people what they have to do and don't have to do. <laughs> and finally, Jason Gorber from FilmFest says, The Master is a brilliant film. The Master is a confounding film. The Master is a terrible film. The Master may be talked about for the ages or forgotten in a few years. The Master may be a masterpiece. The Master may be empty of content. Oh my god. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> the whole review was probably like that. <laughs> Just like sentence fragments? Yeah. And yeah. What the These, master uh, is and the master isn't. Massively existential questions. Uh, I mean, that's interesting. I can't tell you right now if this movie is celebrated or forgotten by time because all I know is like I fucking talk about it constantly, but I don't know if that applies to the general public. Uh, I guess we'll see by the you know the response to this episode. Um what what would you say is PTA's most uh, enduring film in turn like in terms of of his career when the book is shut on PT Anderson? What do you think the movie that you know fans will take and leave copies of on his tombstone? <laughs> uh, probably there will be blood. That yeah, and Boogie that, Nights. I think that that's okay. No, I think that the average person will pick Boogie Nights out of a lineup. And PTA fans will probably tell you that There Will Be Blood is his masterpiece. You have a lot of people, a lot of Boogie Nights fans that were that their emotions were exacerbated or basically intensified by There Will Be Blood because everyone talked about it as PT's masterpiece. And then they felt that they had to be more defensive of Boogie Nights, which is great. Uh, I think, would you say Magnolia? Would that be yours? Yes, Magnolia is number one. I mean, easily. <laughs> to, to me, there's no, there's no argument. But I, but I'm also aware that Magnolia is just is not popular in the PTA circuit. I really like Punch Drunk Love, and I, I don't. I think that falls in a similar category. There's people that, even PTA fans that aren't particularly crazy about it. They just don't get that much recognition, like critically, I guess, and that trickles down to not even mainstream recognition. Because I mean, they, I guess, Magnolia got one nomination, I think, for at least one of the big ones. I don't know. I don't uh, know Tom Cruise got nominated ass. for it. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. I don't know if he got like screenplay or direction or anything, but, but yeah, nobody brings it up. I feel like I'm the only person that brings up Magnolia at any conversation. <laughs> You just like at parties and shit and like hey, it's my good, good time. Speaking of which, have you seen Magnolia? Yeah, that's your good time. <laughs> you guys seen this movie Magnolia? All right, Julio, we're about to dive into a time after the Second World War. I guess technically it could have still been going on at the time of the film, but before we get there, how did you watch The Master for this uh episode? So I own The Master on Blu-ray and uh I was going to do that. But it's streaming on Netflix, and I was curious to see what the quality was like, and it was surprisingly good. It was, I mean, it looks great. It, it, I mean, I watched it on the big TV, and it was four in the morning. I went to bed really late, really early last night. Woke up today at four in the morning, like an old man, and uh, and I watched the master from four to six, and then I fed <laughs> the animals. 
and it was great. It was it was uh, it looked great. I I want to say it probably looked as good as uh, my Blu-ray. So our TV in our living room went out last week. The I don't know the power supply or the LED board or something just went out. Uh, it was an LG, and I went to their help center and tried everything that they recommended, and it all came to the same answer. It was your TV's fucked, <laughs> and I looked online of um, how to fix it, and it would have involved me taking it apart, getting new parts, replacing it. And we live in a time, you know, first world problems type thing, but you can get a good TV for without breaking the bank. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh, we got a 55-inch Samsung 4K. Uh, it's I got it all set up and everything, and I think this was maybe the first movie I watched start to finish on it since we got it. No, we watched Tropic Thunder the other night on Blu-ray. But yeah, physical media, baby. Watch my master <laughs> Blu-ray. And then you add on to that, this 4K and all these nice little doodads and whatnot. Uh, the master was shot on and transferred to home media... 70 millimeter so it takes up the whole fucking screen and it looks amazing it's gorgeous it does beautiful yeah so now to the adventures of freddie quill joaquin phoenix a traumatized world war ii veteran struggling to adjust to post-war society and prone to violent and erratic behavior works as a photographer in a department store but is fired for getting into a fight with a customer while working on a farm in california an elderly colleague collapses after drinking a batch of Freddy's homemade moonshine. Freddy flees after being accused of poisoning him. Dot, dot, dot. So, as is mandatory to call out in situations like this, this is a Weinstein Company movie, so I immediately started the movie going, awkward. Uh, <laughs> Instantly feeling bad for every single actress that you're about yes. to watch over the next two hours. Well, today was September 21st, which the song by Earth, Wind & Fire, September, that do you remember the 21st night of September? Uh, and, of course, that song always makes me think of The Untouchables. So today I was like, oh, it would be fun to share this on Twitter and Facebook. And then even that, it starts up. <laughs> and this, when the song kicks in, the Weinstein Company, it's like, <laughs> fuck, we got to go back in time and just, you know, uh, if fucking... Spielberg can replace guns with walkie-talkies, then we can go back in time and just get the Weinstein Company scrubbed from film history. But you don't have to do much either. Just just turn it upside down so it's an M instead of a W. <laughs> the Meinstein Company. <laughs> the Meinstein Company. <laughs> or just go back and replace all the fucking signature intros of the Weinstein Company, just like with a picture of Matt Damon doing two thumbs up. I mean, that's really. Lame. I thought you were gonna say with Christopher Plummer. <laughs> even better that picture of chris or that uh clip of christopher Plummer ripping the nazi flag in half from the sound of music <laughs> there you go biden put some money aside to fund this <laughs> we, we got it all figured out uh but yeah the movie starts with a big wide shot with the crescendoing score my first note says this motherfucker thinks he's christopher nolan uh <laughs> just the way the the opening shots of this are and very um i mean Christopher Nolan movies. You got to get the big establishing shot of scenery and then kind of the the looming extreme close up of your your main character and it's very in your face right away. Yeah, uh you mentioned on that on that little intro that that basically Hawking Phoenix is suffering from some some mental issues and I honestly that's the problem when when you're someone like us that watches so many movies and keeps up with modern movies and all that stuff, your perception of things that maybe were not so bad back then, it, it can change radically. And then something that seemed inoffensive or kind of okay 
uh, in mm-hmm. 2013 or 2012. Like now, it feels derivative and not as cool. And here's the thing: there's already a movie, a much better movie about Joaquin Phoenix dealing with mental health issues. He actually won the Oscar for it. <laughs> so, that did not take long. <laughs> that is my one, my one official Contrarian's Corner Joker joke. Okay. Um, okay. I might as well get get my other my other similar bit out of the way, which is that there's also a much better Scientology movie that we've covered in this show, and it's called Battlefield Earth. So on two flanks, the master falls short. Yeah, Freddy, it's just a... I, I guess you would call a montage. It's just a collection of shots. He's on a beach somewhere with his fellow uh, soldiers. I mean, as... What happened, man? These dudes got fucking horny. I, I de- I've never been to a level of horny, and I've been to some <laughs> horny levels in my life, but I've never been there where I make a woman out of sand. Uh, and then it's one of those things of these dudes put together this woman, this nude woman made of sand, and then Freddy takes it too far by like getting on top of it and going to town, uh, like humping it. And the guys around him like laugh at first, but then he's doing it for an uncomfortably long amount of time. So they're all just kind of like, all right, we're, we're going to go over here. He, he ruined the moment. Killed it. Took it too far. And then we get a shot of him just like cranking into the ocean. Uh, <laughs> man, I he's even more like off-putting physically in this than in the Joker. Because he, like, obviously in Joker, he got really gaunt. More so than this. But in this, his like posture is so fucked up. And uh, it's like he has this big hump in his back, but his waist is really tiny. It's just a weird contortionist thing he's doing with his physique that's... Uh, not fun for audience members. And it's also unnecessary because it never comes into play. You know what I mean? Like if he was, if he just had standard posture, the movie still happens. He can be a drunk uh, with PTSD without having to look like, I don't know. It's just such a weird affectation. Do you think that that was Hawking uh, Phoenix or that was PTA creating that visual? I don't know, man. Joaquin is an artist. So I wouldn't be surprised if he, you know, had his own read on this character. I'd love if like PT Anderson th- saw Freddie Quill as like this 265 pound guy, <laughs> big, big beard, long hair. Yeah, came back one leg, and Joaquin read the script and was just like, "I can do something with this. I'm gonna put my own little spin on it." But yeah, he he's a drunk, but not in the traditional sense. He's not drinking Bush Light. This motherfucker's drinking rocket fuel. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this was the style at the time, uh, whatever you could get your hands on. But throughout the movie, we see him, you know, drinking paint thinner, developing solution. And like I said, rocket fuel, Listerine. Uh, No, it's Lysol that he finds in one of the cabinets on the ship that he makes his way to. So he literally is the drunk that will drink whatever he can get. What's the COVID drug that Trump likes? Is his ivermectin the horse (laughs) drug? Yes. If there was any, if there was any ivermectin, he would have drank that too. Um, at least you got. At least a man of my stature has a little bit of class and waits for the Coors Light to go around. So yeah, Freddy's in the process of being offboarded as a soldier. They're trying to plant him back into normal everyday life and just back to society. Um, which again, as we learned in many sad cases, uh, and emphatically and dramatically, that just trying to insert. Uh, post-war soldiers back into society is a recipe for disaster. And we see that with Freddy here as they try to make him a photographer at a fucking Sears or Dillard's or something. And he tries to be nice, but 
He is he's just has his mood swings are too crazy. He gets into a fight with one of the customers. He uh, shacks up with the fur coat model for the store in the dark room, gives her some of his booze, asks her out on a date. Kisses her tummy? Yes. And like <laughs> pokes her nipples like a newborn baby. He's like, look, look, look at this. But they steal the scene from the, the fucking fighter with Mark Wahlberg because he passes out on their date. <laughs> yes. This is one of the most perplexing elements uh, of the movie. This character, the, the girl from the from Sears or whatever, because she gets a full introduction that the camera follows her, uh, Aronofsky style, as she's walking around the store. I guess Good call. Showing the the you know the fur coat that, that she's supposed to be selling, and and the music swells as she's walking. You're like, all right, this is the, the this is an important character. This is, and then she hooks up with Joaquin, and you're like, oh, that's that's his girlfriend. Okay, well now it's gonna be her and Amy Adams, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Joaquin Phoenix. Man, she disappears from the movie. <laughs> like nobody gets an entrance like that. Not even Philip Seymour Hoffman gets an entrance like like this girl did, and then she's gone. Is there like a whole hour of the master on the cutting room floor where we actually see her parallel story as uh, Freddie Quill is in the ship and she's just looking for him everywhere in the city? I would hope so. Uh, I would hope there's like an hour on the cutting room floor that just it's like freaks. They showed it to a test screening audience and this woman had a much better like a character arc <laughs> and the reactions to it were so bad. P.T. Anderson just fucking threw it in an incinerator. <laughs> this is Freddie's movie. Uh, okay, and now, of course, I'm a little offended, Alex, that you didn't call him by name, but the guy, the customer that Joaquin gets uh, into a fight with... Okay, is, he's been on The Contrarians before, right? Because I, I thought I remember us talking about him. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a Contrarians favorite, W. Earl Brown, who we just loved in uh, Lost Souls, the Winona Ryder movie, where he snapped someone's neck like it was nothing. Yes, yes, that's who he is. Uh, he he's pretty well camouflaged in this, but because I just pulled up his uh, IMDb and saw his picture and remembered exactly who he was, but outstanding, good callback. He doesn't snap Joaquin's neck in this one, though. No, he's like a bitch. He just lets Joaquin like <laughs> completely mistreat him. Has no dignity at all. As we mentioned, Joaquin makes a batch of his secret booze, his flaming homers. Uh, one of the local men has a bit too much. After his job, he ends up just working on a farm somewhere, as I imagine Sears cut him for getting in a fight with a customer. Uh, an older gentleman drinks some of it, puts him in a bad way. Again, we don't know if he dies or not, but it's enough for them to think Freddy intentionally poisoned him. So he's on the run, literally, and makes it to a pier somewhere and just jumps on this boat that's taking off. And we get this beautiful shot of this boat with a party on board festive music seems like a good time of course his dumb ass doesn't even wedding crashers it he just jumps on and finds some sto he's stowaway basically finds a bunk to pass out on a bottom bunk too it's not like they're not gonna find you dude <laughs> uh then again there's no security because he's able to do no. this easily but they also say i don't know what he did that night because uh, the next morning when he meets lancaster dodd played by the incomparable philip seymour hoffman uh they make reference to him being drunk and acting aggressive. So who knows? Who knows what happened that night? That's another part of the lost hour of the master is what actually happened. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the long saga of the Sears girl was intercut <laughs> with uh, Freddie Quill binging. It's this uh, this film's version of Tales from the Black Freighter. It's basically this 
huge uh, subplot that was interwoven that had to get cut before uh, national release. So he meets Lancaster Dodd. He introduces him. He asks, is this your ship? And he says, I am its commander. And I think this is the scene where he's wearing that just killer red robe and just, you know, kind of explaining. Might not be a robe. Might just be some old style pajamas. But whatever the case, he introduces himself. And this, he tells Freddy, I think we knew each other in a past life or, you know, you seem so familiar to me. And so begins the buddy comedy of <laughs> Lancaster Dodd and Freddie Quill. So th- this, this first meeting of uh, Joaquin and Philip Seymour Hoffman, it already sets up the biggest betrayal PTA uh, infringes on his audience. And that is that... Uh, the sexual chemistry between them, the sexual tension and chemistry between Lancaster Dodd and Freddie Quayle is uh, it's palpable. It's there. It's inescapable. I don't know if it was intentional, or, you know, from the actors or if it's something that just happened because sometimes magic just happens unplanned, but it's there. And this movie never pays it off. The Master is two hours of just a cock tease. You know, we, we see them... <laughs> argue like like they're in a relationship we see them playfully wrestle like they're in a relationship we see them drink like they're in a relationship but they never commit to the next level and that's i'm assuming on pta because it looks like we know that hooking is up for anything and we know phil seymour hoffman took his job seriously so if pta had actually been brave enough to truly make this the story uh, a love story between two gay men in post-World War II America. He could have done it. He had the the talent there. Uh, but instead, he, he just meanders and <laughs> turns into a story about reincarnation and religion. Who gives a shit? I just wanted to see them make out. <laughs> so Lancaster officiates his daughter's wedding. And there's obviously a reception on this boat afterwards. They're going to New York, I believe, is where he tells Freddie they're going from California. Reception's on board. It's a, a good, grand time. Uh, Lancaster asks for um, Freddy to make some more of his. I can't remember if he calls it a concoction or a potion, but potion. Yeah, he's just a dear delightful potion. Yeah, uh, he's he's a big fan of it. What do you make of the master? What do you make of of the master himself, of Lancaster Dodd, as played by Philip Seymour Hoffman? Um, did he remind you of the drunk dad at a wedding, where he's just speaking nonsense, but everybody has to laugh because he paid for it? Oh, absolutely. He's the unfunny dad, like, telling awful jokes. <laughs> and on top of that, he's, like, this religious zealot, uh, this fraud who's, like, in full promo mode at the beginning, just <laughs> a, a dragon. And, you know, he's trying to act out what's coming in their way. We can see through him right away, like he's a glass sheet. But Freddy is just looking for a harbinger of emotion and just someone to... Um, reciprocate back to him feeling an emotion so he's swept up by this you know Hulk Hogan was a terrible person but could cut a hell of a promo and you know he could sweep up the entire nation just by talking about vitamins and prayers and defending America and that's kind of where we're at here with Lancaster Dodd uh, we meet his son uh, Val Dodd played by Jesse Plemons who we brought up earlier uh, and one of the the most awesome bits of casting that has kind of gone uncelebrated <laughs> because like they have the exact same hairstyle and they look like a legit father and son in this. It's actually very well done. He dresses them. I want to believe the suits Jesse Plemons is wearing. And this is like old Philip Seymour Hoffman suits that he couldn't wear anymore. Couldn't fit into. And then, and, and then there's the, 
justified resentment from son to father, where every scene, Jesse Plemons just looks embarrassed uh, <laughs> you know what his father is doing out there. Oh, God, he's telling the dragon joke again. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> also on board, former writer for SNL and star of the Comedy Central television show Workaholics, we have Jillian Bell. Uh, she has just a very, very short scene uh, where she's had some processing going on. What what do you make of processing, Alex? Explain it to me like I'm like I'm six years old because I don't understand it. <laughs> okay, explain it to me now like I'm four years old. Uh, <laughs> because that's the next scene here, the big processing scene with Lancaster and Freddie. Um, I don't know. To me, it just seems like emotional torture or like Chinese water torture type shit. The specifically with Freddie, it's done in this weird way, like. Lancaster puts his thumbs on his wrist to like read his pulse and tells him he can't blink and, you know, asks him these same questions over and over and over again. And it doesn't really make much sense. It seems just like a long, mean spirited rib on Freddie Quill. Like he's just fucking with him. I don't know what the the cause's reasoning behind it was uh, other than to mentally manipulate and break these fuckers to make them think that they need you know, a master, so to speak. Yeah, I wonder if if the the strategy that Lancaster is using on Freddy here in the scene is the strategy that PTA uses on the audience, which is like, I'm just going to act like I know exactly what I'm doing. You're not going to understand what's happening, but I'm so confident while I'm doing it that you're going to believe that you're in the presence of something special. And so... That's what happens to Freddy when he's going through the processing, answering these questions over and over and over, uh, and fooling himself into thinking that he's arrived at some sort of truth. And that's what happens to a lot of people watching The Master, especially the critics, I guess, that they can't make out what PTA is trying to do, but they're meant to watch the movie without blinking. And then at the end of two hours and nine minutes, they're like, it's good. (laughs) It has to be, like that guy said on the quote. Through this, we learn of the one true love of Freddie's life was a young lady named Doris. And boy, I mean young lady. She was, um, <laughs> I believe the story goes, she was like a pen pal or, you know, did like a part of a program for young ladies to write letters to soldiers in the war. And he actually ended up tracking her down. And she was 16 years old and they had a, a torrid love affair, it seemed. Was that okay in the 50s? Was that just what they did when they came back from war. I forgot how young the actress looks. So like just the optics of it are just kind of like, yeah, Joaquin looks like he's 60 in this movie. And she looks, she's supposed to be 16. And she looks like she's, I don't know, 14. (laughs) Yeah. That I kind of forgot, but yeah, it was commonplace at the time. Again, not justifying anything, but he falls in love with her. We get a part of her singing to him. We get a very truncated version of their relationship, but we learn that he wanted control over her. But then all for naught, he just ends up skipping town and ran out on her. And He says it's his goal to get back to her because, you know, Lancaster's just grilling him like, why aren't you with her? <laughs> uh, the end of the processing scene results in one of the greatest lines in the movie and one of my favorite lines of any movie of the past 20 years where Philip Seymour Hoffman is smoking and he says, I love cools, the minty flavor. <laughs> Very famous uh, outtakes from that scene. Possibly the most innocent moment in the entire movie. And, you know, it's hard to use the word innocent in a movie about emotional and financial manipulation. But there it is. I thought the line you were going to quote was when uh, Lancaster is asking Freddie 
if he's ever had sex with somebody in his family and Freddy says that he had sex oh, with Oh yeah, that's a aunt. that's a real rib tickler, a real <laughs> side buster that line is. <laughs> well, because he says he had sex with Aunt Bertha and Lancaster goes, Why? And <laughs> Freddy says, I was drunk and she looked good. Simpler times were the fifties. <laughs> So they make it to New York. They have a, a party there. Um, some of the f- funders and followers of the cause have a party for them. It's a really nice wear your Sunday best type affair. Uh, there's a demonstration. Bunch of white people. Oh, yeah. I mean, this movie is <laughs> high level white people shit. Like tickets to this came with a gift card to Panera. It was <laughs> there's no disputing that. But he does a demonstration of processing and how it works and is going on this thing about potentially they can use their mental control to defeat cancer, travel back in time, and reincarnate and all this bullshit. And then we have uh, a guy there. I forgot how many times Lancaster's and they full promo mode and just going off. How many times this guy goes, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And, you know, the first few times he completely ignores him. And then he starts, like, looking back at him. And But it's, like, a good, you know, half dozen times. And then he's finally just like, What? And this guy, they basically have the equivalent of like a Facebook comments discussion here <laughs> in this really nice, elegant party, which I'm sure had some fantastic deli meats as hors d'oeuvres. But yeah, he's just saying, I don't believe you. And uh, he has a few lines of dialogue that still radically and dramatically apply to today. And, you know, in the situation we're in right now, like these insane anti-vaxxers and stuff. And he's because he says something like, does the idea of the cause scare you? And he goes, scare me? No. What does scare me is some poor fool falling for your shit. He says something along those lines. (laughs) Some poor soul with leukemia coming to you for help. He's basically like, you know, Philip Schumerhoffman's Alex Jones right here. These people that (laughs) fall for this shit blindly. And this guy is trying to have this rational talk with them. And like people with extremist views. Philip Seymour Hoffman is just getting escalating, escalatingly more and more defensive and hot-headed, tempered. And then he finally yells at him, and he goes, then what is your question, pig fuck? <laughs> and until this, pig fuck now is part of Julio and I's everyday vernacular. I had never heard it used in the context of this. I didn't even know it was possible to combine those two words. Yeah, like, you know... You joke around like pig fucker is one that I had heard before just in the sense of like, you know, a backwoods country boy type thing. But it's so out of nowhere. And it's just he just calls this dude a pig fuck. It's insane. And the the crazier part was this was his Oscar clip at the Oscars. They just literally cut it off right before he said pig fuck. I remember us watching this and we were like, Uh, what? I remember the days when the Academy was that brave. We're like, are they going to keep in him calling him pig fuck? And then they cut away in the whole room collectively. Oh, um, so this this obviously kills the mood at the party, uh, which which makes sense. But, <laughs> a little bit. But it didn't kill the mood in the movie. This is one of the most exciting, maybe even the most exciting scene in the movie, because for one, you see Lancaster Dot finally lose his cool. He's been, like you said, the... The unfunny drunk dad, kind of putting on a show, whatever. But here, he gets mad, and it's kind of cool because the other guy, uh, his name is, I think, John Moore. Yeah, John Moore. <laughs> My notes are John Moore, the pig fuck. Uh, I mean, he holds his own. And I thought that this would have been, I mean, it's a little late in the game, but it would have been the moment where PTA establishes the, the main antagonist. 
So it's going to be, the rest of the movie is going to be Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman against this dude who is not a star, but he was holding his own against Philip Seymour Hoffman. But no, that's it. Like, the character, John Moore, has one more scene in the movie, and we don't even see him. <laughs> they just paid the actor for that one day, and that was it. Yeah, they, didn't, they paid him to do voiceovers. They're like... <laughs> Like, oh, no, we're not paying for you to go through wardrobe and makeup again. You just stand behind this wall and say this. But, yeah, uh, Freddy goes and beats him up because he's mad that he made his friend look stupid. And then comes back. He's like, I wouldn't worry about John Moore anymore. And starts <laughs> laughing about it. And You animal, what did you do? Naughty boy. <laughs> so they make it to Philadelphia where they stake their flag in the ground. It's the where they're setting up shop, at least for the time being. They're being hosted by Laura Dern, of course, the star of Last Jedi and Inland Empire. I believe that's how she's introduced now across the world. Every time she's on a, a, a talk show in China, that's how they introduce her. Star and of Inland Empire and Last Jedi. In Laura certain Dern. circles, they, they introduce her as that lawyer for a marriage story. <laughs> yes, the painfully aggressive and boring movie that she was in that she won the Academy <laughs> Award for. Uh, playing completely against type. Where is she playing against type? Was she playing against type in Marriage Story where she played a cruel, conniving lawyer? Or is she playing against type here where she plays a fangirl? How would you describe her character here? She's so submissive. I know her way more as like a, a an assertive, strong-willed... She has all the qualities of a leading lady. And here... She is very much just in awe of Lancaster Dodd and of the cause and just kind of giving up her home to these people. <laughs> so I think it's against type more in the sense of she's not the focal part of the scenes that she's in. She's just kind of there, which congratulations, P.T. Anderson. You took an actress <laughs> like Laura Dern and just made her kind of there. <laughs> which speaking of which. I mean, Amy Adams is yep. in this movie. We barely talked about her because up until this part of the movie, it, she doesn't really have much to do. And that's because in the scenes to follow, she just she's naked. She jerks <laughs> off Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, she does this weird sexual manipulation of Freddie. Uh, th things for the, the character of um, is it Peggy? Is that yeah. Peggy Dodd? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The things that that Amy Adams, uh, her lines and her character's motivations change really quickly uh, in this movie and when we get up to this point in it. But I guess that goes to speak to it's a very phallocentric film and very, very male-driven. Yeah, this movie has no time for female motivations. It's just, well, they're there, they're in awe. Like, it, the answer to why did they do this is always because they love Phil Seymour Hoffman. Why did Laura Dern give up her house? Oh, because you know she's in awe of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Why did uh, Amy Adams jerk Philip Seymour Hoffman off? <laughs> because she loves him. Uh, yeah, it's such a waste of two great actresses. It, it, it actually hurts even a little more when it comes to Amy Adams. Because the, when you boil it down to uh, the very basics, her character is just an angry wife. And that's just, come on. That's 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 so basic, and you're talking about I don't know how many times has she been nominated for an Oscar? Four, five. So yeah, I mean she was in American Hustle. <laughs> she was in Man of Steel. <laughs> Freddie is just endlessly horny here. There's a part where Elizabeth saddles up next to him, Lancaster's uh, daughter, and she just like puts her hand on his cock, and he just <laughs> grabs it and starts like ferociously motioning it. 
And while he's doing this, he's looking at Rami Malek across the room like, yeah, motherfucker, I got your girl right here. Hand on my dick. What are you going to do about it? Of course, it's like one of these just morbid tests that the Dodd family has for Freddy. But in that one moment, it's like one of the only parts we see true glee on the face of Freddy Quill in this movie. Do you think he uh, he achieved completion in the, in this sequence? I hope not. He was wearing khakis. He wouldn't be able to hide those at all. Black slacks, maybe, but not. Not. I would hope not. But I wouldn't put it above Freddy and you know his character. I mean, because when when Elizabeth gets up before she walks away, she just pats him on the back, like "good job, <laughs> good game." Good game. <laughs> we get a musical number with Philip Seymour Hoffman, which made me beg the question: Why wasn't this just a Philip Seymour Hoffman musical? Naked. Uh, well, I mean, not he's him. not naked. Everybody yeah. else. A naked musical. Because from this this sequence, though, we're seeing it from Freddy's perspective. That's why that's what he sees is just flesh. And that's sadly the, the grip on reality that Freddy has is in just every woman he sees, he sees naked. That's all he really desires. But the booze and the, the potion, the concoction is just taken over. And this is the very off-putting handjob scene. Where Amy Adams is jerking off Philip Seymour Hoffman and just makes him promise to quit drinking and, uh, you know, no more of the booze and no more fucking around type thing. And I mean, she's jerking him off while she's asking this. <laughs> but it's just you so. Could, uh... You could ask me to convert to the Taliban <laughs> while you're jerking me off, and I would be like, oh, yeah, I will. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are two, two things that stand out in this scene. One is that. Zero lubrication here. It felt a little uh, like punishing. I mean, I guess the, the master likes it rough, but still, it was just uh, and he, like I, I doubt he's hard right away too. <laughs> so she's like trying to force it and just like mashing it with her hand. Yeah, n- yeah, I'm I'm with you from a, a male perspective. There, I had some questions. And then the other thing is that uh, when when it's all over, she goes and she cleans her hands. <laughs> in a towel there and I'm like, oh dude that's laura darren's house <laughs> well no she runs her hand under the sink first and then you know goes to clean it she it's like albert brooks in drive when he has the the knife from uh, brian cranston's house and then he just goes and cleans it in the sink and puts it back she, she just neatly folds the towel and puts back this fucking <laughs> philip seymour hoffman cum rag <laughs> The next morning, this is where we get Jesse Plemons just dropping the truth bomb on Freddie Quill, and because Freddie tells him you should listen to your dad, you might learn something. And he's just—I remember this line from the final trailer. He says he's making this all up as he goes along. You don't see that because he's such a bored teenager. Uh-huh. You know, he's slumped in his chair with his resting his hand on his fist, and so Freddie goes up and he's just ready to fight at a moment's notice. You got something to say to me? It's a shame that we never get to see that fight. We see Freddie getting a lot of fights in, in this movie, but the one with Todd, <laughs> with Jesse Plemons, that never happens. And that I felt like that was yet another tease from PTA that didn't pay off. The police show up and they're there. They have a warrant to arrest Lancaster Dodd off of, um, is it embezzlement? It's something to do with money that he took from a former follower uh, that he claimed he was going to heal. Maybe not a follower, but a charity or something. It had to do with him siphoning money. Some sort of foundation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is where it just falls apart and you can tell he's just a fucking moron because his, you know, 
his response to the police is just like, under whose authority? For what cause? <laughs> and the, the cops are like, is this guy fucking serious? <laughs> I, I do like one of the few things I like in the movie. And again, it goes back to how I think the actors were better than the material. Because Philip Seymour Hoffman is kind of doing his best at keeping the police at bay, asking these stupid questions or whatever, confusing them. But then the moment that he loses his school is when Hugging uh, Phoenix starts attacking them because they're, they're trying to take Philip Seymour Hoffman away. He and, starts fighting with them. Yeah, he starts fighting them. And that's when, when Philip Seymour Hoffman gets scared. He's like, don't touch the boy. Don't hurt him. They get to the jailhouse. Freddy has an absolute meltdown. He destroys the toilet. He's, you know, trying to rip the beds off the wall. All the while, Lancaster's in the next uh, prison cell or jail cell just staring at his shoes. <laughs> and he tries to, you know, calm him down like your expression of anger is not good. Da, da, da. And he's like, oh, it's all bullshit. And this is like the scene where Lancaster loses it completely because he just goes full fuck you and just starts yelling at him, piece of shit through the jail cell it's it's fucking hilarious and I don't think it's supposed to be yeah. the worst part is that when it's all over we have to endure about 10 seconds of Philip Seymour Hoffman taking a piss which is just gross <laughs> it's one of, one of the grossest things in cinema is when what the scene is about somebody taking a piss and you hear it it, it's just there's nothing else going on so your whole attention is on that and less than 10 yeah. minutes ago we were hearing his noises of ecstasy and seeing his vinegar strokes <laughs> so just too much to do with philip seymour hoffman's cock in a consolidated period of time too much too soon uh julio i don't know if you know this it's one of those things where i'm like i i thought it was a wide known fact but uh this jailhouse scene here joaquin's acting when they get there was entirely improvised it was a real toilet that he broke, and like his whole meltdown was was completely authentic and genuine. And so, and, and that's that's Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's not acting; he's just telling Hooking Phoenix to go fuck off. Well, I was gonna say like that's what makes him just no selling the meltdown so great. He was probably just really annoyed. He's like, "Oh, here we go. Joe Quinn is back to chew up all the fucking scenery." <laughs> People back home. Uh, People back at the House of the Cause begin to question Freddy's motivations and if he's actually dedicated to what's going on, if he's potentially a spy. All these insane cockamamie, just utter paranoia delusions. But Lancaster, of course, says, I don't believe that. We need to help him. And the line that closed the trailer for the movie, it's where he says, if it is not we that are helping him, it is we who have failed him. <laughs> And Amy Adams says, perhaps he's beyond saving. The master. So that's the master presented for your consideration. <laughs> My main takeaway from this scene is that uh, Rami Malik calls, he doesn't call Philip Seymour Hoffman master. He calls him dad. Oh, yeah. It's super cringe. <laughs> if you would have told me when this movie came out, watching that, you know, less than 10 years from now, that kid's going to be an Academy Award winner. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> Freddie comes back, and this is where Lancaster uh, puts him to the test. We get a elongated montage of all these tests they put him through, uh, be it visual tests, you know, psychiatric tests, you know, testing his his will, his endurance mentally, trying to break him sexually. That's what we're talking about. They have Amy Adams reading him just absolute smut, and he's like, "I don't want to hear you read this." And he's like, "No, this is for the greater good." Walking back and forth in the house over and over again. Uh, to a wall and then a window to touch it with his eyes closed to you know 
describe what he feels. He breaks the set. They kept that part in the movie where um, his eyes are closed and he walks into that table and then he punches the wall and breaks the wall. <laughs> I always thought that was funny that they kept that in and the next scene it's fixed, of course. But Anyway, Freddy, they're just putting him through hell, you know. It's the trial by fire or uh, baptism by fire is what I meant to say there. Would you say this is about what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of <laughs> of montage of, of Freddy just walking back and forth? It's long. Uh, you feel like you're in Freddy's shoes in this sequence of going through all this and just being tested to the point of, you know, mental exhaustion. It's, uh, um, it's, it's the movie in a nutshell. It's, it's, it's an allegory for the movie inside the movie. Uh, his commitment's tested, but he's he's committed. He he's all in. Hashtag all in. We learn that book two from Lancaster has been completed, and it will be unveiled to the world at Congress of the Cause. Uh, they're gonna have a gathering. It's gonna be you know um, uh, a mass ceremony. What do they call that? Congre- congregation is the word I was looking for. Is that like Comic Con for fans of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman? <laughs> yes. Uh, you. You can pay twenty dollars to get an autograph eight by ten, or you can do the whole combo where you get you pay for forty dollars, then you get a picture with them and the autographed eight by ten. It's a bunch of girls cosplaying as uh, Peggy Dodd doing hand jobs <laughs> around the corner. <laughs> and then you have the one guy who's like the the really niche esoteric friend who dresses up as Freddie Quill. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say he, he dresses as John Moore. John <laughs> No, that that's like on the ticket. Like, no John Moore costumes, please. <laughs> no laser pens, flash photography, or John Moore cosplay. <laughs> this motherfucker buried his books out in the desert. <laughs> this dude is so like sold on his work that he buried them, and he takes like four guns with him when he goes out there. I've forgotten about that shot where he unearths the vault, the chest that his book is in. But before he pulls it out of the ground, he does a perimeter check to make sure no one's around. And he's got that fucking six shooter in his back pocket on the on the holster. He's got a rifle and high comedy. And again, I'm not entirely sure it's supposed to be. So, uh, what people had to do before the cloud. He <laughs> just buries shit out in the desert. But the big event is here. The unveiling of the second book. It's the Congress for the Cause. Congress of the Cause, whatever the hell they called it. Uh, and Lancaster comes out and begins explaining, you know, the new book and the new message and what the future of the cause is. And this is where Freddie finally figures out that this dude's full of shit. And I don't think he's sobered up either. So that has nothing to do with it. I think he finally is just listening to this guy and he's like, this motherfucker has been taking me for a ride. So what do you think does it? Because it's not like he's acting any different from all his other speeches that he's given. But this is the the part where he says something so stupid that like, there's no coming back from it. It's the thing of like the the secret is laughter. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't remember what you know the the solution or the secret ingredient to you know what is needed to complete the cause's mission is laughter. And like you can even hear in the crowd like, is this motherfucker serious? <laughs> and then Freddie's face is just like. What is going on? If you look past the close-up of Joaquin, you can see in the background the extras leaving. <laughs> they didn't even wait for the Q&A at the end. <laughs> he finally sees through this. And then he goes uh, to one of the other members of the cause, one of the members of the congregation there, and asks him, you know, have you read this book? And he says, yeah. He's like, it's not good. It should have been a, a three-page pamphlet that we hand out. 
And so Freddy, I think, is more mad at himself than anything here and uh, takes this guy out back and doesn't really beat him up, just tackles him and forces him to the ground. I think he slaps him once or twice. Tickles him a little bit. <laughs> yeah, gets under the ear. <laughs> um, at the same time that this is happening, perhaps more disturbingly, uh, and this is maybe the most awkward scene in the movie, in a movie that features uh, Phyllis Schumer Hoffman getting jerked off by Amy Adams, uh, but it's when uh, Laura Dern comes up to him with a couple of questions, <laughs> comes up to the master with a couple of questions, and it's just oh, yes. uncalled for. It made me uncomfortable how rude uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is to her because she's prodding and asking him about some inconsistencies between the first book and the second book and whatever and he finally snaps and he's like what the fuck do you want from me <laughs> and Laura Dern's face it's just like I didn't need that in especially because it feels so real it almost feels like like we were watching uh, like b-roll like behind the scenes stuff where is the actress Laura Dern asking Philip Seymour Hoffman about the stuff that doesn't make sense in the screenplay of the master <laughs> and Philip Seymour Hoffman is done with it. He's tired of trying to make sense of it. And he's just like, fuck off, go ask PTA. It's weird. And then we never see her again. There's no comeuppance. There's no redemption for Laura Dern. No, she just gets yelled at by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And that's that. They go to the desert to play a game and exercise that Lancaster likes to do called pick a point, pick a place. He has a name for it, but basically you just take a motorcycle and you ride a little ways and then just come back. It's just kind of like um, a decompression and exercise and relaxation and kind of just calming oneself and soothing oneself. I rode a four wheeler one time in a big open field and same thing. Like I just, I would reach a fairly high rate of speed and get somewhere and just like the sensation of the wind rushing on your face and through your hair it, it it is strangely relaxing you wouldn't think that doing that would be a stress relieving situation but definitely is but you came back i'm assuming alex when yeah you i was about to say <laughs> freddie realizes this is his one chance at escape it's, it's almost like a a naked gun gag of like you know this guy's <laughs> trying to break out of prison they're like here you go take this motorcycle and you know just be sure you come back and so he just gets on it and hauls ass to Lollapalooza, and he's the fuck out of there man <laughs> Uh, he goes to wherever uh, Doris had resided. I, c I can't remember where that was supposed to be, but shockingly, she has moved on and is married with kids now. And this is a just a damaging blow to one Freddie Quill. And the mom is also pretty cool about the whole thing. Uh, mm -hmm. She doesn't seem put off by the fact that this borderline pedophile just showed up at her house asking about her daughter again. Like, you think that she... She must have felt that she dodged a bullet when Freddy never came back for Doris. And now suddenly he's right there at her doorstep. And she answers all his questions. Yeah. Do you want her number? Do you want her address? Do you want to come in? Do you want some coffee? <laughs> I have another daughter. <laughs> we get a shot of Freddy at like a movie theater watch. I think it's Casper. The friendly ghost is what he's watching. At least that's what it sounded like. The Spielberg the, the movie? voice With Christina Ricci? Yes. Did he travel one in forward the, in time? One in the same. The cause, you know, uh, nailed time travel, so he was able to do that. <laughs> and he gets a call from Lancaster Dodd. He tells him to come to England. That's where they are now. Rightly, Joaquin the whole time is just like, how'd you find me? How'd you get this number? <laughs> and what does Lancaster said? He's like, I, I know you. We're, we're linked together. He has some explanation of, like, I've known you in a past life. This is when he really starts pouring that on. 
And then he, but then he also says, "I miss you." That's it. Yeah. And I was like, "Are we? Are, are we getting there finally? Is is this? Is this really? Are we on the runway finally? Are we gonna <laughs> see him get down to business in in England of all places?" He, it, it's a shame he didn't end the call with, "I love you." Uh, <laughs> Click. <laughs> but yeah, he tells him to come out to England where the cause is, and he says, "You know, uh, I miss you, and I want you here." And his only request is that he brings some cools because I guess they don't have those available in England. So. Freddie makes the voyage all the way out there, and he is reunited with Lancaster Dodd. He walks, uh, he walks into this new building, and they're all like, "Hello, Governor! Welcome to the <laughs> Church of Scientology." Just hamming it up completely. <laughs> Jesse Plemons has a British accent. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? Uh, they're reunited. He brings the cools. They have a, a nice hug, a, a warm embrace. Lancaster launches into some insane story about where they knew each other from a previous life. They had worked in Paris together to create a blockade against the Prussian forces. And Joaquin's just like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. (laughs) But this is where he lays it all out. He gives an ultimatum that he's going to be there and devote himself to the cause for the rest of his life, or he's going to leave and they're never going to see each other again. Uh, This would have been a fantastic breakup scene if it came at the end of a movie where we've seen them get into a relationship but it never happened this is just two dudes that never did anything so the impact of Lancaster giving him an ultimatum and then eventually Freddie deciding to walk away is lessened considerably because there was really nothing there to begin with I wonder how PTA feels about this movie he feels like he was being extremely subversive by not giving us what we wanted and yet still framing it like it was a love story, or if he actually is completely unaware of the fact that he was working with a love story to begin with, and in his mind this is just you know a business transaction between a cult leader and a, and a would-be follower. And then all the while, Peggy's there to just be like, what did you expect to happen when you came here? She's like barking at him from behind Lancaster's shoulder, which is a good question. I don't know what Freddie expected. Obviously, they were going to tell him, hey... Lancaster wasn't just going to drop everything for him and they were going to run away together. But <laughs> Maybe that's what he thought, Alex. I guess. But after Lancaster lays it on the table, Freddy, uh, through you know gritted teeth and teary eyes, says, maybe in the next life. Lancaster says, if we meet in the next life, you will be my sworn enemy. And then we get Lancaster Dodd, Philip Seymour Hoffman, singing Slow Boat to China to Freddy as he begins to cry. And that's it. That is the goodbye for Lancaster and Freddie, and uh, our movie closes with Freddie in a local pub, uh, meeting a young lady, a local lady, and they go back and uh, do what adults do during the daytime on what looks to be maybe like a Wednesday. They have, <laughs> while having sex, you know, he begins just kind of talking to her, and then he begins to try to process her while they're having sex. You know, can you answer this string of questions without closing your eyes? And we don't know what the future holds for Freddy. And we don't even know where he is when this leaves, uh, when this movie leaves us. But obviously Lancaster Dodd had made a lasting impression on him. Right. So is this supposed to be a happy ending? Does PTA want us to be happy that Freddy Quill escaped, but still manages to keep the, the good memories of uh, Lancaster Dodd alive within him? You know, he's not part of the cult, but the processing continues. Or is it supposed to be like I read it, which is a tragedy that that Freddy is fucked. Like even even though he walked away, 
he still has Lancaster in his head because it's shot like a triumph, right? He's mm-hmm. he has this girl riding him, and then he laughs and he's like, uh, "Stick it in again," because it slipped out. <laughs> the last line of the movie. Yes, it popped out. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to end it. I think that's just like a, an allegory for his mental state. It popped out for the past two and a half hours. So <laughs> let's try to get it back in. <laughs> All right. We made it, Alex. We made it through the turn's corner. Let's move this on to real talk so we can even more than we have in the past talk about how much we love this movie. Let's do that. Book two is about man. And the title of the book is The Split Saber. And here we have some answers. No more secrets. The source of all creation, good and evil. And the source of all, now, funny enough, the source of all is you. I have unlocked and discovered a secret to living in these bodies that we hold. And oh yes, it's very, 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 very serious. (laughs) The secret is laughter. And we are back. But before we get into real talk and before we get into PP, our patron pitch, first, an announcement, a long time coming. Alex, we're finally, finally, officially, I guess, promoting our uh, little bit of Contrarian's merch that we have out there in the universe. Oh, hell yeah. Throwing this on you because I forgot to <laughs> bring it up before we started recording. That's <laughs> no, good, man. <laughs> yeah, we're on Redbubble, you Contrarian's fans. If, if you're interested in some Contrarian's merch, we have four designs. The, the original logo design, which is, you know, the classic. What you see when you look at our show on your, uh, on your phone or, you know, whatever podcatcher you use. Uh, then we also have a Mattis Rule design uh, inspired by Alex's <laughs> preference for movies that are 90 minutes long or less or shorter. Then we have a design inspired by the original Fly like the movie, not the one with Jeff Goldblum, but the one that we watched despite our mm-hmm. friend Hans Ruth Gieser's uh, recommendations. And then there's one inspired by Eurotrip. If you guys go to uh, redbubble.com slash people slash the contrarians, you can look at all four designs, courtesy of Hans Ruth Gieser, the man behind our logo. And like we've been saying for months now, the man behind our, uh, our merch design. Uh, you can get the way Redbubble works, the way most of these online stores work, is you just upload the art and then your customers can put that in a gazillion different things. So you can put the, the Mattis Rule logo on a hat and you can put our original Contrarians logo on a t-shirt and you can put the Eurotrip inspired logo, I don't know, on underwear, on a koozie, <laughs> on a mouse pad. I, I saw they have mouse pads. So... Anyway, if you feel like having some some contrarian swag, and some of our patrons actually have some already because uh, they've known about this about the link for a while, but we just we were not ready to announce it yet. Now we are. So Redbubble.com/people/the contrarians. 
see if uh, there's anything that uh, you feel like getting. It's, it's, it's a way to contribute to help us out with the show, too, because we get some of the proceeds. So now that that, that merch pitch is out of the way. Uh, what's, MP, the, what's the link? Redbubble.com slash people slash the contrarians. All right. The contrarians all together. Yeah, this is all new to me, too. This is awesome. I really like the logo at the like the splash of it, where it's a little tomato guy in front of a laptop with uh, the <laughs> Infinity Gauntlet and uh, Wilson from Castaway. Yeah, that's that's all from the from the mind of Hans. Perfect. But anyway, now we can move on to PP, our patron pitch, the segment of the show where we let our patrons know what they can expect on our patron feed, and that way also non-patrons uh, find out what they're missing out on not being patrons this month. We should have, by the time that this episode drops, which will be the end of the month, we should have our quick video reviews for uh, The Land of Steady Habits from Alex and Game of Shelter from me. I'm going to say 90% chance that they're already up. But if they're not up by the time you listen to this episode, definitely a few days later. Uh, we'll also have our uh, exclusive episode on Desperate Measures, also requested by Ben. And then, of course, uh, the standard stuff like our uh, cutting room floor segment where we put all the clips that don't make it into the episode. And then our uh, pre-recording notes. And, of course, Contrarians After Hours. The spin-off show where we talk to you about other things that we watch or other things that we read or other things that we played. Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? So I mentioned we got that new TV. Uh, my litmus test for new televisions, like the last four TVs I've gotten, has been watching the opening credits to Watchmen on there. Because it's so oh, colorful nice. and it tests the sound really well and everything. So that was like immediately what I popped in. And then my sister was just like, uh, no, just leave it on. So she ended up like watching it. And my dad was here. And my dad really dislikes that movie. And just listening. <laughs> Not to, surprising. Listening to my sister defend it. I'm like, you should really talk to Julio about this sometime. Because we, he and I both came to a similar conclusion about it. But it's it's a val it's a valiant effort and there's a lot of good to it that should be <laughs> celebrated. But so got that. I still haven't really played any new games on or anything, but you know, a new TV is exciting. There's a lot of things you gotta do to test drive it. But whatever the case, that's kind of just a little anecdote. That's more of an anecdote than something I'm to focus on. Uh it, it's been a while since we recorded you were on vacation. Um we lost one of the greats, man. Uh Norm MacDonald lost a uh you know, they say he lost a battle with cancer, but as Norm MacDonald, one of his bits was they always say you lose a cancer, uh, a battle with cancer, but to my understanding, the cancer dies with you, so that's at least a draw. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, no, I just wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about Norm Macdonald, and when he passed, um, I immediately was reminded of um, a quote. There's a, a wonderful documentary called End of the Century about the, the history of the Ramones uh, from start to finish, and... Of course, being a major influence on him, uh, Rob Zombie's interviewed on it, and he has this quote in there about the Ramones, about how they were always kind of like a time capsule of you could go see them at any point from basically 77 till 96. You could go see them, and they would always be great. They'd always look the same. The sets would change a little bit, but it was it was always kind of this thing of like for that moment of watching them, you know, you could say, well, what year is it? You know, you would just be like, this artist is just timeless. And to me, that was kind of Norm Macdonald in my life. He wasn't a guy that really cared about changing with the times. Um, he knew what 
he wanted to do. And, you know, growing up in the 90s and through the 2000s, Norm was always around. He was always on the late shows and he was, you know, always on MTV or Comedy Central or something and always did Norm MacDonald style shit and never compromised. And so he was kind of like that to me. Of uh, I took him for granted. He was always around and he was always fucking hilarious. And so losing him as quickly as we did, uh, as unexpectedly rather, and, you know, it sounds like some there were some people in his family didn't even know what his condition was. So, uh, yeah, we'll just talk about Norm a little bit. Some of the things I really enjoyed him in some of the memories I have of him from my childhood. And yeah, I just want to take an opportunity to talk about Norm. He, I was a big fan of his and you know, I, I never really aspired to be a stand-up comedian or necessarily an actor or anything like that, but he was definitely someone who was an inspiration in terms of like, believe in yourself and believe in your art and you know, don't compromise. Uh, and I know that's obviously easier said than done. And that's not something everyone can do, but to see how he persevered and, you know, in spite of, he could have done, you know, hit a watermelon with a sledgehammer or done a bunch of Dane cook style shit. And he didn't. And (laughs) I think his legacy, uh, to the comedy community is definitely one of legend. I mean, the outpouring definitely showed that, but just kind of expanding on what I'm talking about here. I, I expect to be educated. Um, on my end, Alex, I've watched a couple of movies, one that you will never watch in your lifetime, so I will spoil it without any regards. <laughs> I, I won't worry about spoiling it for you. I'm just going to go completely uh, spoiler full. Uh, I watched Jane Campion's The Piano, just inspired nice. by our recent In The Cut <laughs> episode. <laughs> I saw it was on Netflix, and I'm like, you know what? If it doesn't happen now, it's just not going to happen, so... I watched the piano. I'm gonna tell you about it, and it's disturbing similarities to in the cut, which I was not expecting. Uh, and then also inspired by your experience, your recent positive experience with uh, Hunt of the Wilder People, which I watched a long time ago. I watched it when it came out. But uh, the only Taika Waititi movie that I hadn't seen yet was his first one, uh, which is called Boy, and uh, it was streaming on Hulu. I want to say so. I watched it. it's like. I think it's like an hour and 29 minutes, and it was great. So I'm going to tell you about that as well. So, boy, the piano, and then a touching tribute to Norm MacDonald from Alex <laughs> Mattis. <laughs> that is your After Hours show uh, on the Patreon feed. If any of that sounds interesting, go to patreon.com slash Prime. Check out our tiers. See if you want to contribute how much you want to contribute and uh join the contrarian supplements yeah man we got our different tiers we got different things that uh can come your way uh, it all boils down to you know if there's a movie you want to hear us cover you can throw us a buck and demand that we do so uh but check it out give it a trial see if you like it if not tell us what you want us to add we are all ears uh, to our current patrons thank y'all love y'all all the same uh, but we are accepting applications for new ones. Bring it. And now, and now. the dramatic conclusion <laughs> to P.T. Anderson's The Master. Pig uh, fuck. I mean, it rules. It's amazing. It's probably the number one movie that Julio and I both have. Like, If there was one movie that Julio and I had equal levels of love for, like if we had friendship rings that when we put them together it formed the the poster of a movie it would probably be the master <laughs> there's a lot of movies that we've talked about and both you know on the podcast and just at our as our time as friends uh i'm not sure there's one like this of both you and i watched it together we're just completely over the moon about it and really since my understanding is both of our 
appreciation and love for it has just grown. It's not one of those movies yep. that we watched back and kind of um, acquiesced a little bit. I'm sure if I went back through our episode list, I would find a movie that both you and I were like, oh, yeah, it was just delightful. It'd probably be like a Christmas movie or something that we both really enjoyed. But it's um, Avengers Endgame. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> nah, man. It is what we say it is, and that this will be our opportunity to fully break it down. Before we do, though, 84%. Certified fresh, but that still means it had its fair share of um, detractors. What were the um, certified Rotten Tomatoes contributors? What were their points of contention with this masterpiece? <laughs> All right, so so not many master puns uh, on, among the Rotten quotes, but uh, here's a few Rotten quotes. Graham Young from Birmingham Mail says, This is for cinephiles. You are expected to love it, but it sometimes left me scratching my head. So this is one of those guys that just resigned to not getting it. Uh, Al Alexander from the Patriot Ledger says, A perverted sausage party in which Anderson fully indulges his obsession with male genitalia. What? What? <laughs> Al Alexander from the Patriot Ledger. He says that this is a movie about penises. Uh, it's a movie about a really horny guy. You get that clip of him jacking into the ocean, and the one you and I always kind of jokingly uh, refer to about the, his Rorschach test, where he's like, "Well, oh, that's just uh -huh. a cock. That's a that's an upside down dick. That's a pussy." I mean, unless he's trying to make some comment on it being like a heavily male-driven film, I, yeah, I don't understand what the hell he watched. Yeah, obsession with male genitalia seems taking it a little too far. Eileen Jones from The Exile says, It is silly, almost beyond human endurance. Silly, what's it called? Silly animal, silly weasel, <laughs> silly rascal. <laughs> it is the sound of an animal. And finally, because how could I not close with this, Alex? Roger Ebert from I, The Chicago Sun-Times. I Sun knew Times. it was coming. <laughs> that fucker. The, ma <laughs> the master is fabulously well-acted and crafted. But when I reach for it, my hand closes on air. That hurts, Roger. He gave it like two stars, I think, or something. I remember when the review came out, I was I was kind of gobsmacked by it. It's weird to hear him say that about a movie like this and also to remember, you know, in our recent history, how fucking over the moon he was about Crash or something like that, you know? It's uh <laughs> it's surprising. Because with Crash, I was fully on Siskel's side. It's Ooey, Roger. Ooey. I was about to say, hey, completely different movies, but not really, because they're both very, uh, it's not obtuse, but, you know, like, they're not holding your hand. No. They really, they throw a lot at you and expect you to make sense of it. You know, you just interpret whatever they're throwing at you and come out of that either mystified in a good way or confused in a bad way. And... I mean, I, I I understand. I I think the master is more accessible than than Crash. Oh, absolutely. I was gonna say, you know, I'm not. I wasn't as high on Crash as you were, but my thought is on both of the films is similar in the sense of it's a movie you can take at surface level and still both of them, Crash and the Master. Just since we're talking about them, they're both movies you can take at surface level and take away something from it. But they're also movies that you can just keep diving into and finding new things and, you know, reading new things into it. Just in this particular instance, The Master just worked resoundingly better for me than Crash did. Do you believe it's a movie you have to be a cinephile or some artsy, fartsy, hoity-toity 
pretentious, litigious little shit to enjoy? <laughs> or do you think that... Uh, Objection. Leading. <laughs> uh, conjecture. I, I think this... I don't know. I can't, obviously, because I can't remove the filter that comes with my brain or the way I read things. But I would like to think that this movie isn't that. I would like to think that someone who hasn't spent three hours of their life in one sitting arguing about the necessities and the pros and cons of what the Marvel franchise does to us as a society. I, I would like to think that you don't have to be that kind of person to appreciate a movie like this. It obviously helps because I've never really talked to, you know, I've never heard Jeff down at the gas station filling up his pickup saying, man, you know, it's a hell of a movie is that master movie, man. But at the same time, it's, I don't know. It's a movie I always feel weird talking about because I feel like I sound like a dickhead when I talk about it, but I, then I realize that's me talking about all movies. But uh, <laughs> I kind of well, just so you know, uh, Jeff's favorite PTA movie is Boogie Nights. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's he really likes uh, William H Macy. It's like man, <laughs> that dude from Jurassic Park blew his head off. That shit was funny. Uh, <laughs> it's a movie that I have heard people say the type of people that like it are just pretentious and view themselves as holier than thou. But I've watched this movie so many times and I don't feel that that's necessarily true. Because we've talked about movies like that that come with their own air of smog and it might just be PTA. It might just be his movies that I've never really felt come along with that. But I'm curious Julio, do you think that it is necessary to be someone that delves 12 levels into a movie or any type of art <laughs> to enjoy the master. Well, no, I mean, that's an easy no. I, I don't think that you need to be a, a pretentious movie critic, you know, and I don't even think that you need to be a, uh, I don't even like the term film buff, but, you know, let's say film buff seems to be more of a, a friendlier term for, you know, what you would call online film Twitter, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. film buffs make up film Twitter and film Twitter sucks. Therefore it sucks to be a film buff. <laughs> but if you can get rid of the negative connotations, you know, if you define film buff as somebody who watches a lot of movies and likes talking about movies and likes taking movies apart and putting them back together and all that stuff, you know, that's a real question. Forget about the pretentiousness, the potential pretentiousness that could come with being that type of person. If you watch a lot of movies, I guess, and you are at a point where you've maybe see even this sounds pretentious. <laughs> I was gonna say where you've stretched out your horizons a little bit because I don't blame anybody for not liking it. That's the thing. I, I understand there there are some people. I mean, fuck. We were talking about how like my wife fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a movie for everyone. I think it requires patience. It's also like an emotionally it, it, that it, patience and also. It's kind of a, emotionally a rough watch in some parts. Yeah, but even then, I think that if that if that's the problem, then the movie is working for you on some level. If it's upsetting you, yeah, that's you know? a good call. Uh, so, but but people that find it boring or that think that nothing is happening, kind of a standard plot. I mean, I could tell you we've watched movies that have had less of a plot than this. There is a story, there is a relationship that drives the movie, but it goes on for a little over two hours, and I, I think they're very relatable characters, but they're not characters that are easy to relate to just on the ground level so to speak you know what i mean so if you come from 
pain and gain. So that made me think of Michael Bay. But you know, it's one thing to watch The Rock, which is a movie I like a lot, uh-huh. you know, and then watch The Master, and that requires like engaging your brain in a different matter. And that doesn't mean that if you watch The Master and you didn't like it, that doesn't that's not a, a slight against your intelligence or your standing in the artistic community or anything. But but at the same time, it also I I refuse to believe that you have to have leveled up a lot in order to like the master i think that yeah a little bit of leveling up maybe you know like watching enough movies to kind of get used to certain rhythms you know certain patterns the appreciation for the actors goes a long way like i could watch philip Seymour hoffman just do whatever if yep. if the entire movie was just lancaster dot giving speeches i'll be happy yep. <laughs> no story just I want. I wanted to tell me more about that dragon. <laughs> Just what else are you gonna do with it? Uh, a dragon. Same thing, Joaquin Phoenix. You know, if the entire movie was just him, kind of going from boat to boat, getting into adventures, uh, getting to fights, I'm down with that too. Because they're just so good, such good performers. But I come into you know the master with uh, already with an appreciation for those actors. So I'm already kind of like rubbing my hands, you know, going in. So I'm sure that that helps. I wouldn't put this movie in front of somebody who you know hasn't watched a single Paul Thomas Anderson movie or who's never watched a movie that's similar to this because I think that you're rolling the dice it'll be like a 50-50 chance that they might be entranced by it or, or that they might be just bored or confused and I mean look Roger Ebert was a film buff he was a film critic he was he'd watched more movies than either of us exactly in and he it didn't work for him obviously so it's not about it's not about that. It's not about like, oh, you need to be a pretentious uh, film person to to appreciate it. I think it's it goes deeper than that. What do you connect to when you watch this movie that makes you love it beyond the performances? Or maybe it's just the performances. You know, it could just be that you just love it because there's Philip Seymour Hoffman and Hooking Phoenix are so good. But I always find myself really enjoying the you know the relationship between two people that have such a different set of beliefs, but. You know, Hakim Phoenix is desperate for connection and he's trying to look past the fact that Philip Seymour Hoffman is full of shit just because he's so desperate to connect to someone. And to me, that's fascinating that you just go on that journey and he's constantly on the verge of just walking away. And then at the end, he finally does. Actually, he does it twice. <laughs> I don't know. What, what do you what do you connect to in the movie? Because that's probably a, a starting point. Neither of us is a pretentious film critic, I'd like to think. <laughs> We're just salt of the earth podcasters. Yeah, I can certainly be pretentious about some movies. I, I have my handful of movies that I can just be a real dickhead about. <laughs> uh, Case in point, last episode, Pain and Gain. There you go. I was trying to think of what it was that I, when I was talking about directors that come with an air of smog to them because I knew we had done something recently, so I was looking over our past few episodes. Noah Baumbach. That's someone whose movies come with like a fucking... <laughs> Uh, soy latte like there, there's just this <laughs> feeling of immense emotional and intellectual superiority that comes along with those movies that I just fucking loathe whereas with P.T. Anderson to me his movies just feel like an extremely talented dude kind of what I was talking about Norm Macdonald earlier of like he has a vision of what he wants to do and he's never really wavered from that and that has resulted in mixed responses to some of the shit he's done but then that's what makes it great it's him you know what you're getting and it's unadulterated pta and what that means is a movie going ticket buying member of the audience is you don't always know what you're gonna get and so 
Cool. With The Master, going into it, the hype was all around. It was a movie that was starring Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman and was directed by P.T. Anderson. I was just like, I don't know what the fuck this is going to be, but I'm sure it's going to be awesome. And none of the teasers or trailers going into it helped that at all. Like I said, the first few of them were just this really foreboding and dark. And most of the original teasers had footage that was not used in the movie at all. Just this sense of, what is this? What is this going to be that made it so exciting? And then when we finally got you know, the standard two and a half minute trailers that gave us a little bit more insight to it. And then the discussion of like the, uh, Scientology thing kind of started rolling into it, kind of crafted a bit of a bit, a bit of a better picture. So what drew me to the movie is I still think with Freddie, he's just a lost soul. And I think the movie that the story that is told is us following this man on a journey and he finds a man who he views as a true friend, which you can tell by the state of Freddie, he hasn't had many of them. The unfortunate thing is this true friend that he finds is wrapped up in this uh, second life, you know, this whole dual living conundrum. Uh, I think one of the really awesome parts of the movie and something I love is the scenes where it is just Lancaster and Freddy. We get to see Lancaster specifically who he really is. And if that's talking about cigarettes and why he likes them or if it's like that raw emotion of fuck you in the the jail cell Mm -hmm. it's this just really fascinating story of human relationships and how humans act in certain situations even like at the end where you can tell he he loves freddie and he wants him to be there with him because he misses his friend but he still doesn't lean into it all the way because his wife's there he you know he behaves a certain way and it paints just this really interesting story of this friendship. I would say anyone that's ever had a friend, which I would hope would be everybody. Uh, I think it's a, a situation that a lot of people can relate to of finding that one friend that the, the connection is just on a different level, but the kind of issues that can come along with that or the hurdles or, you know, the, the confusion that can come along with, you know, well, what is this? And, you know, how close should we be? That type of thing. Now, this is all the ground level shit. And then you add into it just the idea of financial and mental manipulation that comes in. Whereas I don't think that's really what Lancaster tried to do with Freddie. I think he saw that he was lost and looking for a cause, no pun intended, uh, and realized he could help him. I, I don't think he ever really wanted to torture Freddy or, you know, manipulate him. So it was just more or less the people around him needed to see that to keep this whole facade going that he believed in him. Therefore, Lancaster kind of put him through the, the ringer, as they say. So the, the human aspect of it and the human, the, the relationships in it is intriguing. Then you pile on the ideas of cults and religious cults, the situations that arise from that that are kind of explored in this, not entirely. I mean, a lot of that is not even surface level. A lot of it is in passing. I think, obviously, the the biggest scene that delves into it is the argument that he has with uh, John Moore at the party uh, that shows, like, the evil side of that and... You know, I don't want to malign any specific religion. I know I only already threw Scientology under the bus, but we see it a lot with 
shit today with social media and these causes these people try to lead that have no idea what the fuck they're talking about and what it does is it just gets a lot of people swept up in it and leads them completely astray or leads them down a path of absolutely no good so you watch something like this and you realize how this that's been obtainable since the dawn of man you haven't always needed social media to do that these people have been doing this since life began which is sad but it makes for an interesting story to tell I was going to say, social media just made it easier. Yeah, it ex- amplified it. <laughs> expedited it and exacerbated it. I mean, Lancaster Dodd would have, I don't think he would have a TikTok. He's too classy for that, but he would have a YouTube channel. He would, Well, he would be banned from Twitter by now for sure. <laughs> he uh, would be on the, whatever uh, just underground platform Trump is now. Oh, uh, is it Parler? Parler. Uh, it- <laughs> I know, I remember it was right as I unfollowed her on everything. It was Gina Carano was pimping. Everyone come to Parlor where free speech is still alive. I was like, fuck off. <laughs> That's immediately what comes to mind when someone asks me like, why I really enjoy this movie. It's obviously, from the things I'm saying, it's layered. Um, there's very relatable aspects to it. As yeah, I, I'm not a veteran with PTSD by any means or anything like that, but there's definitely relatable things to how people react to trauma, you know, running away from a past life, what not facing your past decisions can throw at you uh, on the other side of the coin, creating this false reality for people around you. I mean, I, I've never done that. I, I've watched pro wrestling for 35 years almost, so I can relate to that <laughs> aspect of it. But And then, you know, this world you built of lies you see it crumbling down around you and the way you react to it. And I can't sympathize or empathize with that, but it's definitely something I could think uh, to relate to or what that would be like. And would I be like Lancaster in this situation? And it just brings about so many interesting thoughts, conundrums, ideas. And then you take all that and you put it into this cauldron or you put it in a, you mix it all together in a bowl, you pour that into a pan. And then on top of it, you put this frosting that is this absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous movie directed by one of the better film directors of my lifetime. And what it produces is this like cake or pie or whatever sweet, or even maybe like a shepherd's pie, something savory for you. But it creates this just dish that is really unlike anything else. The performances in this range in a way that you would think isn't going to work. You would think that with Freddie being the way he is, and by that I mean Joaquin taking this role with like this weird kind of limp and hunch and, you know, talks out of the side of his mouth and, you know, one eye is kind of perpetually closed. (laughs) And then you just have Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's as loud and verbose as ever. And then you have Amy Adams, who's this just phenomenal actress who's extremely reserved and quiet. And then all these other kind of A-listers sprinkled in throughout, like Laura Dern we talked about. It seems just so strange on paper. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get to with all this, these emotions that you go through and the presentation of it. It really is unlike anything I've ever seen before or since. It's not really something I could compare it to, which isn't always a good thing. But in this case, it just makes it stand out. It makes it pop so much. And I know I've just been going on because you can tell I, I have a lot to say about this movie but what about it attracts you what about it stands out to you and makes it one of uh one of your more beloved movies like it does mine oh i didn't blink the entire time that you were talking <laughs> i could hear you slapping yourself to keep it keep it going <laughs> yes um uh, i think 
like I said, to me, it always goes back to the relationship between Freddy and, and Lancaster, which of course would be kind of like the obvious answer, right? But I, I had to pull up my letterbox review from last time I watched it, which is when I watched it on the 70 millimeter print back in January 26, 2020. Okay, now this is where I pat myself in the back. Because uh, I, I felt like I had had this breakthrough watching it. And so I had to write it down. And I wrote, the tragedy of Freddy Quill is that he's desperate enough to fall for Lancaster Dodd's bullshit, mm-hmm. but too smart to go all the way. And the tragedy of Lancaster Dodd is that he's Lancaster Dodd. So that's what really makes me feel bad for Freddy. I almost always kind of forget how smart he is because he's just so he does so many dumb things, right? It, you know, he's drinking all that shit and he's acting foolish. But then the movie, from time to time, just gives you a glimpse into this bigger understanding. You, you this guy knows what's going on. I think, and I always get the feeling through the movie whenever he gets too close to uh, to acknowledging Lancaster's full of shit, he just turns away or he decides to just be in denial. You know, that to me is is it's something that you appreciate more on rewatch. You know, once you know how the what the the path of the relationship is, but seeing him just a desperation to connect with someone and then finding somebody like Lancaster that's so charismatic. That's the problem for him, that he would be perfectly happy if he was able to follow Lancaster Dodd blindly, like all the others do. But unfortunately, he can't help himself and he knows deep down that Lancaster is full of shit and that leads to the tragic ending where he just walks away. That, to me, is extremely compelling. <laughs> just watching this relationship grow and the, the ebbs and flows of it. But here's a question for you, Alex, because I was trying to figure out, I realized I've never really asked it to myself, like, to where I had to have an answer. Do you think that Lancaster Dodd believes what he's saying in this movie? Do you think that he's a true believer, or do you, believe, do you think that he's an absolute fraud that's just putting on a show? Yeah, no, I, I always thought that he was he knew he was lying. I think he believes what he tells Freddie, but I think every time he's in public or you know his writings, his scriptures and whatnot are just absolute uh, fiction, uh, a work of fraud. I believe that Lancaster views himself as uh, maybe not an omnipotent being, but definitely like a, a vessel of some sort to deliver a greater message. But he just he's unable to do that because it's all lies and bullshit. But I think that, like I said, when he talks to Freddie. I think what he tells him is true. At the end, for example, when he's telling him, "Oh, I I figure out where we know each other from," and he I was, tells him, of- "I was just about to reference that uh, because I always have this twinge of potential supernatural aspects to this movie, like because of that, and because he believes that so ardently, and the only reason I ever feel the slightest bit." justified in saying something preposterous like that maybe it's true in the aspect of this movie is that shot (laughs) of uh amy adams eyes changing and turning black obviously the most likely read of that is just we're seeing what freddie's seeing and he's Mm -hmm. being successfully mentally manipulated into that situation but it's made me sometimes question if there isn't a little bit of twinge to it that adds this uh hyper fictional aspect to it and maybe they did know each other because I believe everything else that Lancaster tells Freddie. I'm not in a position to say, I don't necessarily believe that. Right. I'm glad you're entertaining me with this. Cause I, I feel like I, when I've thought this before in the past, I've just been like, man, 
I don't know who I could say this to because it sounds like a really dumb read of the movie. <laughs> uh, I feel like I believe Lancaster more than you do. Not not that I don't think that what he's saying is the truth. Like I I I don't buy into his his religion or his you know his theories or whatever. But I I believe him as like I think that he mostly buys it himself. Like I think that he doesn't just sell the Kool Aid; he drinks it yeah. as well. Like I I don't think that he and Freddie know each other from a past life. But when he tells him at the end, I believe that that's what Lancaster believes. Like he he had a dream, or he just basically came up with this idea and convinced himself that that's where he knows Freddie from. When really, probably the most rational explanation is that. They just had good chemistry. Sometimes you just meet somebody and you just go like, man, I can talk to you like I've known you for years and you have known them for hours only. So I think that it's just they had this connection. There's no supernatural explanation. But I, I'm kind of in the middle. I think that he believes everything he says, but I also think that he might feel like he's out of his depth, like Astrodot, that is. I, I think that he is not as confident about his second book as he is about his first book. Oh, and yeah, the I walls are definitely crumbling at that point. Yeah, because they, they keep talking about how they're in, you know, they're in debt, they're in, in financial trouble. And so I think that that second book is published more out of a necessity to fulfill the promises that he's been making and not because he had anything to say, really. I think that he's a believer that has found himself kind of caught up in, in a business. You know, he created this movement and now the movement has a life of its own and he has to live up to the movement's expectations. And that means that sometimes he's saying things that he believes and sometimes he's embellishing things that he believes because that's what people expect. I think my read, and of course I could be wrong. I mean, or I don't think that there's anything in the movie that says that this is wrong or right. But to me, for example, when he is doing the processing and he's telling people that this is how one day this will cure leukemia or that now it cures mild cases of leukemia or whatever. I think that he's a hundred percent certain and sincere that that's what he believes. (laughs) Have you been to the pyramids? No, but you know they are there. <laughs> yep. I like that reading because it makes him a more interesting character. I think that I like the idea that his outrage, when John Moore confronts him, his outrage comes from his beliefs being challenged yeah. as opposed to his outrage coming from like, oh, somebody caught me in a lie. But I also like the idea that his outrage at Laura Dern, like his when he snaps at Laura Dern, that's different. That's because somebody caught him on a lie. <laughs> so I like the different shades of the character and it but that makes him also very interesting when he's relating to freddie because i i think that he has freddie's best intentions in in mind he wants to save him he sees this guy that's destroying himself that's aimless and he thinks that he can rescue him and shape him into the perfect uh acolyte and that doesn't turn out so really it's sad for freddie because freddie's too smart to, to find happiness with Lancaster. And it's sad for Lancaster because there's this genial guy that he has a connection with and he can't he can't make it work because he has to choose between his work and this friendship. So all that stuff to me is just, I mean, every time I watch it, their dialogue, their conversations and the, the little moments between them because it feels like such a genuine friendship, such a genuine connection. I saw some quotes and I'm sure that this is a, this is a completely valid read of the movie that just go even further and kind of like what I was joking about in Contrast Corner where they're like oh there's a sexual element going on that dealing with repression in the 50s and you know the, the connection that they share goes beyond them just being two dudes that 
like each other, but it's actually two dudes that want each other. And that also drives the story. I was like, I I don't feel it that way, but I can see how you could read it that way. Certainly, uh, their, their playful wrestling when they come back from jail, you know, where he tears like part of his pants off. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I can be like, oh, somebody could go like, oh, see, see, there's, they want each other. But I think that whether you read it as a, as a sexual connection or just as a, as a strong friendship, I mean, it's still, it's it's fascinating to follow. And then it's what you said, I mean, the other aspect of the religion. And I, I'm sure this resonated with me before, but now in the times we live in, the idea of seeing a sympathetic portrayal of a person that's the kind of person that falls for this stuff. You know, like I, I see Freddy somewhat fall for what Lancaster is selling and I don't resent Freddy for it. I just, I feel bad for him. I understand. I was like, he's in such a shitty place that this guy who's speaking nonsense seems like a viable alternative. And that's where so many people are now. And that's probably where, you know, so many people have been through history but now it's like i was saying it's just so amplified because of the internet and social media and you just have so many freddy quills that just get on facebook or get on twitter or get on youtube and whatever and they and they're find their lancaster dots online i mean all they have to do is <laughs> type a couple of words on a search engine and then they just go down the rabbit hole there's that extra layer of resonance now watching it because it's uh, the first instinct is just simply to look down on someone like that but part of the beauty of uh, the master is that it it helps you have an understanding and have compassion for someone that's in that situation. There's so much going on in the movie, it, and and at the same time, I mean, having said that and what you said and all that stuff, if somebody sits there, watches it, and then tells me that they didn't get any of that, I understand because the movie is not you know it's not breaking it down for you like little by little so if you're not connecting with it from the very beginning i think that it just gets harder and harder to 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 follow we're conditioned by mainstream movies to expect the story to go a certain way and it doesn't go that way you would expect a bigger explanation a bigger reveal of what's going on with the cause and that's always kind of in the background left you only get hints of what's really going on there you never really get a full breakdown of what these people believe or what they do, what they do. Even the fact that, you know, we can have a conversation, a discussion about whether Lancaster Dodd believes what he's saying or not. That's because the movie doesn't make it clear. That would make it harder for someone to connect if they're not in the movie. Now, luckily, from the very beginning, I was in because I love PTA's movies, like his previous movies, and I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I like Hawking Phoenix a lot mm-hmm. back then. So it was easier for me to just be pretty sensitive to what the movie was trying to do to interject right there i was trying to remember there was something else about this with joaquin that i was really looking forward to this was the first film he did in four years and this was the first movie he well the first non i'm still here movie that he did so this was like his his return to form so to speak and i remember that was a big part of my excitement coming into it i was just looking over his filmography yeah exactly uh that two lovers before (laughs) that was it yep um, this is my favorite Joaquin performance. It's so hard to say with Philip Seymour Hoffman. It, it, yeah, with him, I almost famous is probably my favorite of his. To kind of just wrap up the, what we've been talking about for past forty minutes or so about this movie, and um, number one, the farewell when mm-hmm. Freddie, you know, he sings to him, which is that's kind of just the nature of the relationship. But Freddie's goodbye to him always gets me. When he says maybe in the next life, 
because that you, there's so many different ways you can take that of him, you know, either just placating his this crazy guy or you know saying what he wants to hear that type of thing and uh, just the way he delivers it. I mean, we joked about it in the Sixth Sense episode, but it's the Michael's last day in the office moment. Yes, where uh, Jim is pretending that they're gonna see each other on Monday or whatever. Exactly. And maybe not necessarily for me, but I think Joker is going to complicate a lot of people's opinions on Joaquin Phoenix. I think some people, uh, I, I know some people loved that movie way too much, and others were even more harsh on it than you or I. And I think it might muddy the waters for him a little bit in the long run. Uh, I hope not, because he's an amazing actor, and like just watching something like this, you see that. It's weird that he won an Oscar for it, considering the other things that he's done. I think that's just kind of what I'm saying. Very polarizing nature of that movie and his performance in it mixed with the fact that that's what he won his Oscar for, I think, complicates a lot of people's feelings towards him, which it's never really going to happen to me again because I'm never going to watch that movie again. But when I watch something (laughs) like this, it's just like he really is a generational talent. And, you know, as on record, I think you and I are bigger fans of I'm Still Here and that whole thing than a lot of other people were. So you don't really have to sell us on, uh, you know, Joaquin Phoenix. I would hope anyone that's seen that, and there are probably a lot of people that Joker was the first Joaquin Phoenix movie that they saw. If you're one of those people listening to this, please watch The Master and watch her and watch Walk the Line. Uh, he did a lot of good stuff. Watch Signs. Signs. Absolutely. He's definitely going to go in the Contrarians Hall of Fame. I think when we we get when we reach a certain point, we'll have to have an inaugural class, and he'll go in it. <laughs> Same Ben Affleck, uh, Carla yeah. Gugino, Judy Greer, Judy Greer. Uh, another thing with this is, you know, like I said, I'm trying to wrap this up, but with P.T. Anderson, I wouldn't necessarily call any of his movies accessible, but there's there's definitely a range of them, mm-hmm. um, and I think this is on the lower end of. <laughs> It is absolutely not a movie made with the intention of mainstream consumption. And so, just like you're saying, I think when I hear people, like Reed always comes to mind, because he's one of them, and um, my parents both liked this movie, which was kind of surprising to me. I expected them to kind of hit me with, I don't get it. But when I hear people say, you know, like with Reed's situation of, it's just okay, that's more frustrating than someone saying, uh, I don't get it, or, you know, it just wasn't for me. In those situations, then I get like super animated and really enthusiastic and trying to explain it because I want them to get it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I want them to feel the way about it that I feel about it. It's one of those movies that it, it's hard for me to hear someone say it's just not for me because I love it so much. Whereas I, it should be one of the movies that I should be most accepting of people coming at it with that attitude because it is, it's not <laughs> divisive. It's just plain as day. It's just not intended for everybody. And it's one of those movies where that's fine. P.T. Anderson makes what he wants to make and this is it. And that sometimes comes at the cost of not delivering because this movie had a budget of 32 million and a box office return of 28 like i said it swept the award season in terms of nominations it won it had a smattering of winnings here and there uh joaquin phil Seymour hoffman and amy adams all received oscar nominations it birthed the immortal gif that you and i send back and forth fairly regularly <laughs> of joaquin sitting in his chair just shaking his head and uh just contempt <laughs> when they said his name and played his clip i don't even remember what his clip was Whatever Probably the, case. Uh, the processing. If I was editing the Oscars. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. Do you know who beat him? Uh, it would have been 2013. So Daniel Day-Lewis for Lincoln is what I'm going to guess. Oh, no. Then that's that's wrong. 
<laughs> and I, I like Lincoln more than you do. Yeah, <laughs> that that but, is a fact. <laughs> but yeah, no, Joaquin Phoenix, his performance in this is so much better. And then, so who beat Philip Seymour Hoffman? Yeah, it was Daniel Day Lewis Jones for Lincoln. <laughs> Fuck off! He was nominated along with Joaquin. The other nominations were Hugh Jackman and Les Miserables, which is just fucking ridiculous. Bradley Cooper and Silver Linings Playbook. We know I don't care for that movie. Uh, Denzel and Flight, and then yeah, DDL who won. Uh, okay, so best supporting actor: Philip Seymour Hoffman, Tommy Lee Jones, Robert De Niro for Silver Linings Playbook, Alan Arkin for Argo, and then the one that I always have contention with: the winner was Christoph Waltz and Django Unchained, despite the fact mm. that he was the lead actor in that movie. Okay, but even if put him back to back in the same category, it's still Philip Seymour Hoffman for me. Yes, like yeah. easily. No, I agree. And again, it's one of those things of De Niro specifically. I don't really like Silver Linings Playbook, but he was great in that. But like Philip Seymour mm-hmm. Hoffman is just ah, so good. This was his final Oscar nomination too before he passed. Amy Adams lost to Anne Hathaway in uh, Les Miserables. She was also up against Sally Field and Lincoln. Uh, Helen Hunt in the Sessions, which is a tremendous film that really kind of is underrated in the whole scheme of things. And then Jackie Weaver in Silver Linings Playbook. God, I forgot how much that movie was just... <laughs> everywhere how do you we didn't really talk about her much but uh yeah. how do you feel about amy adams i mean she's amy adams uh, i joked about it in the first portion the only thing i've ever seen her be bad in was man of steel and that's because that movie is a slow roasted dog's asshole uh and I, american hustle i see when i always think of that movie from a female perspective i just think of how bad jennifer lawrence is in it so then like amy <laughs> adams doesn't look that bad by comparison right <laughs> So we used it as some of our fodder for Contrarian's Corner. Yes, this is a male-driven movie, but that's the story of the movie. It's the story of the movie. It's the story of the time this movie took place in. And and Amy Adams has had plenty of starring roles, and obviously she thrived in this film, so it's not like anything was really taken away. She's good. The problem is the two leads are just so, like, neutron star levels of bright that anything else that's just kind of... Amy Adams is great, and they're, like, superb, and it kind of overshadows everything else in the movie. Like, Laura Dern's fantastic in what she does. And even mm-hmm. Rami Malek is just kind of the straight man is great. Uh, this movie's littered. It's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to good performances. And with Amy Adams, she's really good. It's it's just this unfortunate thing of the way the movie's presented and the parts in it. She just kind of gets left in the, in the shuffle, so to speak. But the... Really uncomfortable hand job scene. She's really convincing in her delivery there, and um, <laughs> the hand motion is really convincing. It's very convincing. She clearly practiced, you know, playing uh, throwing dice overhand. But <laughs> I'm trying to think of one scene where she has like a really like long soliloquy. It's just she's just like the the, the constant presence. Well, she has yeah. She doesn't get the monologue right. Yeah. She she just gets brief moments in, in important scenes. But as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, it's subtle because you don't think of it. You're right. I mean, you're thinking of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Hooking Phoenix. But the thing is, if you had an actress that didn't have the presence and the craft of Amy Adams, that actress would absolutely disappear next to them. But when Amy Adams is here, it's like, yeah, she doesn't get your attention, but you know that she's there and she she holds her own in a way. I mean, I know if, if directed to, she could also overtake them. But the role requires her to just kind of be in the background. And what I realized this time watching it is that every time I watch it, I become more and more aware of how much she has to do with pulling the strings. I think that what happens is that 
some of those moments where you can see her really being the the woman behind the man happen after a big moment for Phil Schumer Hoffman or for Hawking Phoenix. So you're still kind of reeling from those in her big moments kind of pass you by because there's that moment uh, right after the pig fuck confrontation <laughs> where uh, she's just she's going on a rant and she's talking about how she's lamenting about the, the state of affairs and she's like now we're at the point where we get kicked out of parties and blah 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 and that's like a key moment but because it's sandwiched between the pig fuck fight and then Freddie going to beat up John Moore you don't really think about it too much open rewatches it kind of stands out a little bit more and and it's like it it's actually it's a very important character in the story. It's just that yeah, there 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 are bigger things happening around her. More times I watch it, I realize that her performance needs to be understated because she's like the understated force that drives the cause. She's the silent gear that keeps it running and he's obviously like, you know, she's the one kind of seems to be the one steering the ship from a certain perspective and he's the mouthpiece out there in front. That makes it so much more interesting because you never really get a clear insight to what her intentions are, whether she really believes in it. It seems as so, but you don't really know if she has any ulterior motives or anything like that. So, again, just a whole other wrinkle and layer to it that makes shit interesting. Do not, Julio, be at all enticed to drink rocket fuel after watching this. I'm not <laughs> not entirely sure that's a good call. I don't know, man. Philip Seymour Hoffman's reaction to that first drink is even stronger and more passionate than his reaction to the hand job. So, I don't know. <laughs> oh, God! Oh, God! Oh, God! Ready. It is what Julio and I have proffered every tan- every chance we've had to and every time it comes up on this podcast, and it that is nothing short of one of our favorite movies of the modern era. As you can tell by this... I mean, uh, just raw recording time. We're already at two hours and forty minutes here. We'll, we'll get it. We'll try to get this narrowed down as much as we can. But this is a movie that, uh, facetiously or genuinely, we could talk about for hours and hours. It's. Um, it, I mean, it's one of the posters I have framed that never changes. That's it. You know, I have my movie posters and I recycle some of them in and out. And uh, this one never changes. It's one that I went to the store the day it came out on Blu-ray and bought it. And I will do the same whenever it gets a Criterion or a Steelbook or whatever the fuck. Whatever the next incarnation of it's going to be. Uh, so I don't think it's any surprise. A plus, Julio. Oh yeah, five stars. It's been five stars since the first time I watched it. It's one of those that after we screened it, I... Because I've had a few movies that I screened, because uh, for those of you who may be listening for the first time or haven't caught this before, when we say that screening, we mean like we started watching it at like 1 a.m. When everything else was shut down, you have to screen the print to make sure it's good to go for the next day. So, you know, it was over, We were it was like 3.30. So I've had some times in the past where I've screened something, thought it was amazing, and then just realized that was because I was sleep deprived and just combating that with <laughs> 44 ounces of Coca-Cola. Uh, this is one of those that when I rewatched it, I expected to somehow have my thoughts altered about it, and I it was over. It was like, God damn, that's even better than I remembered it was. It looks gorgeous. I don't think that's something we harped on enough. It's and it doesn't use that as a crutch though. The you know the seventy millimeter thing, and I certainly wouldn't say that Nolan uses that shit as a crutch. It's just what he envisions. But with like Nolan's movies, like Dunkirk and um, Interstellar. I think some of Inception he filmed on 70 millimeter. I know with the Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, there was some IMAX 
sequences right. that were filmed. It goes into his presentation of event movies. It's kind of just comes it's part of what you expect. With a movie like this, you just don't expect it to be so fucking beautiful as it is. So, you know, it's the whipped cream on top of the best Sunday you've ever had type thing. So, that's the rare contrarians we need to figure out a name for it when I give it an A plus and you give it five stars. <laughs> it's it's the highest honor here on the contrarians. We'll eventually figure out a name for it. But if you haven't seen the master, please just do so. If you actively dislike the master, go fuck it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> let us know. Send us an email. Say, at least one of our patrons was uh, underwhelmed by the master. I actually, because it's on Netflix now. So I, I got the, the boys from Netflix and Swill to, to watch it. And uh, yeah, they it didn't work for them. Well, yeah, Dan, if you got the time, send us an email or a DM on Twitter. Let us know. We can read it off on one of our patron segments and figure out what the hell your beef is. But. We can work this out. <laughs> That's right. Just like Freddy and Lancaster, we can figure. We can go to the <laughs> desert with a motorcycle and figure this out. All right. I can just picture you uh, calling Dan and just singing whatever that song would be. <laughs> I want to get you. <laughs> On a boat to China. That moment, if you're with the movie, and I've always been with the movie when it gets to that moment, is just, it flattens you. Mm. But I can also imagine, <laughs> if you're not with the movie, you probably just walk out. You're like, fuck this. <laughs> what is this? Why is he singing? <laughs> not quite as outlandish, but it's the end of Holy Motors when he goes home to the monkeys. It's just yeah. like, if... If you have kind of been with the movie, cool. If not, exactly what you said. Uh, fuck this. I'll be in the car. I'm out of here. <laughs> but yeah, and then again, as someone who's the only cigarettes I've smoked since my sophomore year of college, being Cools, I felt like an, a certain portion of this movie was made just for me. I've never once in my life said, I love Cools, the minty flavor, though, which I have to work <laughs> into my regular vernacular. All right, Julio. Ben, we did our best in the first portion, and obviously we over-delivered in the second half of just fawning after this movie. Hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for uh, your contribution and your demand with this. So with that being said, Julio, what is next for us here? Coming up next, the triumphant return of Christopher Plummer to the podcast. Yes. But really, it's it's more about finally doing an, an Edgar Wright movie. I don't even know how you feel about Edgar Wright's filmography overall, Alex. I guess, the, what's the most divisive movie of his? Scott Pilgrim? Oh, I love Scott Pilgrim. Okay, good. I well, remember uh, Hot Fuzz I was just kind of ambivalent towards. I, I like Hot Fuzz, okay. Anyway, we're doing Baby Driver, his most recent movie. He, he has a new one coming out soon, but you... Didn't watch Baby Driver. I watched it when it came out. and uh, I just know amongst my friends, this movie was incredibly divisive. Yeah, it's in the high 90s. So uh, really looking forward to, one, trashing it, and two, seeing how you like it. So that's next. All right, so moving into perennial plugs, we want to start off by thanking the Festive Years, who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand. Take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Hansworth Geezer, the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our website, and the man behind the graphics on our merch. 
the merch that we were talking about earlier on the episode. Yeah, he is responsible for that as well. Uh, you can contact him on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. You can check out his website, mildemonios.pe. Just find links to all his work. Uh, he has a whole bunch of zombie novels. The most recent one is actually a fake Peruvian history book that serves as a zombie anthology. Uh, zombies have been, I guess, populating the history of, of my home country. Uh, and he has a couple of uh, podcasts as well. Nación Combi, which recently turned 300 episodes. Uh, that's about Peruvian current affairs. And also Marginal, which is about economy. Hans, as usual, and always, thank you for your support. And we thank Zoe Perez for her support as well, helping us out with our social media game. If you haven't already, head over to facebook.com slash contrarian prime. Give us a like. Uh, we have some exclusive videos there that are just exclusive to our Facebook. And Zoe helps put those together, edits those, put those up online for us. Uh, also on our Instagram page, which if you have the Instagram app, just at contrarian prime is where you can find us. Zoe drops videos, audio clips, interactive graphics there as well. Just does some work that Julio and I are too old and outdated to figure out how to do. So, Zoe, we appreciate the work you do for us. So that is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Big fucks. Big fuck. <laughs>